So our scripture readings this morning are from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, and then also Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. So those are found on page 8 and page 916 in the Pew Bibles. If you don't own a Bible of your own, uh, please take that Pew Bible with, a, with you as a gift from us. We'd love for you to have that. Again, uh, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4 pages 8 and 9, 16 in the Pew Bibles. Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went, as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Acts chapter 8. And Saul approved of his, Stephen's, execution And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This, brothers and sisters, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Wonderful to be part of this congregation worshiping our Holy Father, as well as now privilege of hearing from God's word. Um, I need to thank you as a congregation coming from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School for the continuing ways that you are investing in the ministry of God's kingdom by developing and funding the resident program for our young pastors. My wife Phyllis is a physician, and she would tell you that it was not so much her medical school that has helped her to become a doctor, even though the necessary learning from the books needs to take place, and that took place in the medical school, but it was during her residency program. Uh, that she learned really how to be a doctor and how to practice medicine. And in fact, that's what this church is providing for younger pastors through that residency program. So I want to very much express our gratitude uh, to you, the congregation, and to our God for providing such opportunities. So Genesis chapter 12. I'm sure it is somewhat familiar passage to many of you. But I don't know if you knew that, according to uh, Old Testament scholars, that this is also a passage that looks at a very critical turning point in human history. Starting Genesis chapter 3, after that tragic fall of men and women by disobeying God, Adam and Eve, it has been just a continuing cycle of human sinfulness, their rebellion against God, and then God's judgment upon them. And what you see is a very despairing history of mankind just spiraling downward. And then we come to Genesis chapter 12, a place where a new beginning of a new history of a humanity happens. 
you in this passage for the very first time, this person named Abraham, whom we call father of our faith, coming to, coming, coming to encounter God for the very first time. So it's a very significant passage in the human history. Now, what we see in this passage is this, God appearing for the very first time to Abraham, and he basically gives him one simple but challenging mandate, and that is to leave your kindred, your country, your father's household. But then God strangely does not tell him where to go. He does not reveal the destination, but simple command is to leave. And many theologians have been debating about what is the meaning of this mandate and why is this so important in training of Abraham's faith? Well, you know, human nature and human tendency being what it is, when we live in our place of familiarity, in our father's land, where we know people, where we understand the language, where we have a certain stock of a cultural knowledge. When the unexpected things happen, when a challenge comes to us, our tendency would be to rely upon our own personal knowledge of the place. I know what to do in this case. Or rely upon our family networks, our own finances, we don't turn to God first. But what might happen when these individuals get displaced, dislocated, when they find themselves in a setting where they no longer know the language, they don't understand the customs of the land, they can no longer fall back on their family network because they're not there anymore. What happens then? Well, it is then often, starting with Abraham, they lean very deeply into trusting and depending upon this living God. And it's often in that context of utter dependency, God would do his most creative work in and through those individuals. So a, a theologian who studied the life of Abraham and looking at this dynamics uh, coined a phrase that I've come to really appreciate, and he called it God's creative dislocation. That when we feel dislocated, it's often time when God does his most powerful and creative work in and through us and help us to grow as individuals of faith in living God. Well, as you know, that process was not just true for Abraham, but then that was also true for Joseph, Jacob, Ruth, Esther, Daniel. All those individuals that we read about in the scriptures who are sort of heroes of our faith, they went through very similar experiences of creative dislocation. And then coming to the New Testament, as you and I know, the Christianity as we know it began in the city of Jerusalem when on a Pentecost Sunday, Holy Spirit fell upon God's people. The church was first organized. 
And that's where now the New Testament form of church begins. But then we come to Acts chapter 8, where this unexpected and harsh persecution comes to God's people. And their world turns upside down. So while some remained in Jerusalem, everyone else scatters to the ends of Judea and Samaria. They experience that profound sense of dislocation, not because they want it, but because this unexpected development happened to them. But then at that point, notice, according to Acts chapter 8, these believers did not retreat into their privatized faith out of fear, and they did not denounce their faith, but instead, wherever they went, they proclaimed the good news of Jesus and lived out their faith in a powerful way. So before, Christianity was found only in Jerusalem, but now these faith communities scattered throughout Judea, Samaria, and then ends of the Mediterranean world, that Christianity became literally a movement of kingdom that went everywhere Roman Empire existed. Creative dislocation, how that also shaped lives of early Christian church members wherever they went. Now, there is a, a Christian sociologist named uh, Rodney Stark, who now teaches at Baylor University. And many years back, he wrote a very interesting and profound book. It's a book called The Rise of Christianity. And in that book, as a sociologist, he wanted to investigate this question. How is it that this thing called Christianity, which began as a small Jewish religious sect, basically overrun the whole Roman Empire within a span of one century, particularly when they were so harshly persecuted? How did this happen? Now, as a Christian, he knew from the scriptures this was a work of the Holy Spirit. But he wanted to study this issue as a sociologist for the benefit of a secular audience. So he deliberately chose not to use the Bible as his source of research, but he went outside of the Bible to look at all the existing records as to how Christianity so powerfully became this religious movement that overran the Roman Empire? Was it the, sort of some genius plan of organizational growth? Was it a particular way of doing leadership training? Well, he studied all these sources in India, and he concluded this. What caused these early followers of Jesus to to facilitate this amazing growth of this faith movement is that no matter, way, their way, way, no matter where they went and no matter what kind of challenges they faced, they learned to lean deeply into trusting God. And in those moments, somehow they experienced the power of God in such a way that they did not fear death or imprisonment, 
and that they always lived out those two greatest commandments that their Lord taught them, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbors as you would love yourself. And then in his book, he pointed out one chapter that early Christianity was primarily an urban movement. So in many of these major cities throughout Greco-Roman world, a church will be planted and founded. And those early church, uh, cities in the, in during that time, it was very densely populated places. The density of the people in those cities were far greater than what we would encounter in a Kansas City or city of Chicago. People are basically living on top of each other. And then they often lived among their livestock. So can you imagine in a city, you have goats and sheep and chicken running around? And then, of course, back then, they didn't have technology or means to have a clean water. The sanitary system was not the best, the open sewer, and so forth. Therefore, occasionally, when a plague comes to the city, it just spread very quickly. And so the common wisdom, common wisdom and, and the practice of those days was that when there is an earliest sign of a plague starting somewhere in the city, they were forced to leave the city and leave the sick people behind. And that's what they did. Except, according to Rodney Stark, Christians. Whenever the plague came, many, if not most, Christians chose to stay. And they certainly went and visited their church members who fell ill, bringing them clean water, food, and then, of course, praying upon them. But then Rodney Stark's study found that often these Christians also went to other neighbors' homes who are not Christians, and often those who persecuted them and would provide the same service of clean water, food, and praying for them. And often after these plagues have passed, these folks who fled the city would come back to their homes, their community, and to their amazement find their sick family members whom they left behind for dead are now actually well and have recovered. And they would be asking questions, what, what happened? We thought you would be dead. And they would simply tell the story. I thought I would die too. But you know those Christians, Christian families, they came to me, brought me clean water and food every day, and then they prayed for me. Now, of course, as a Christians, we believe that those Christian work of mercy and kindness, that it was also God's supernatural power that's involved in bringing many to healing. But for Rodney Stark, even just sociologically speaking, when this ill, weak individuals receive this kind of fresh water and bread and, and the care, the probability of recovery is rather high. In fact, many survive through that. And what often happened in that context? 
would be these unbelievers who now became well. They would choose often to come to these church gatherings because what they cannot figure out is that how is it that these so-called people who call themselves Christians fear no death? And what would compel them to come to my home to care for me even when my own family members would not do that? And even when I had persecuted them in the past. So Rodney Stark notes in his study that whenever plagues came to these urban settings, in fact, it often contributed to the growth of the church. Can you believe that? The creative dislocation. When the world is turning upside down, when the world is fleeing because of fear, often Christians stepped into that space with hope, love, and power. And in their dependency upon God, God often honored their hearts and did his work of creative power in and through them. Now, let's bring to today's context. Fast forward. I am certain that there are many sitting in this congregation today that you yourself have experienced some of these moments of dislocation in your life and how often those dislocation experiences have caused you to lean deeply into God. Some of you had to physically dislocate yourself from other places around the country or around the world to be here in Kansas City and you remember those early years of settlement, how that was challenged. For some of my friends going through a very challenging and painful divorce experience, turned their world upside down. So even though they did not move physically, they just felt like their world has changed. For some who had a job for decades and that company closes down, and it completely and profoundly changes your world, how you look at today and tomorrow. And what about illness? I remember several years ago when my wife Phyllis found out that she had cancer and that news and how those first initial days, it just seemed to have completely changed how my wife and I think about today and tomorrow and how we relate to our young adult children. It was a profound experience of dislocation. And when that happens, people who do not know the Lord, they can only despair, become anxious, become fearful. But for God's people, scriptures remind us that this also can be an opportunity given to us for us to lean deeply into God and experience the profound, the concept of creative dislocation. But this morning, I want to remind ourselves that collectively, as a society and as a church, we are also experiencing what's called dislocation. And that is this. The society, our world, is going through such a profound change right now. Even when we're in the same geographic location, we feel like our world is just changing 
rapidly and profoundly, and that is creating a sense of dislocation. And one of those changes that, that is taking place right now is a very significant demographic shift that is taking place in the United States. Now, I studied sociology as a PhD student, and uh, many sociologists have been talking about this thing called the majority-minority shift. And they, we were told that it would be around the year 2050 that United States as society, there will not be a one singular majority race group in the United States. Or to put it differently, around 2050, we were told that the Anglo-Americans will no longer be the numerical majority of the United States. But recently, that date got pulled up. It's no longer 2050, they say. It is now around 2040. And in fact, for 18-year-olds and, and younger, that reality is already here. And this shift, as it is happening, is changing our society, our culture, our institutions. And we feel more dislocated because things that we thought we were familiar with and that we had a sense of a certainty, now that's all up in a question. And partly because of this, uh, in our secular society, there is a, that is a uh, emerging sense of fear and anxiety about how do we think about the future of our society? And you, you sense this when you listen to political discourse of today and how generally our society is talking about the demographic issues. That's a human tendency. However, I want to propose to you as a people of God, as we think about the journey of faith, of Abraham and others, when we come to that place of dislocation, there is another pathway for us to think about what's happening around us. Our mission field is changing. And for a church that's called to be Christ's witness in our own Jerusalem, in our own Judea and Samaria and ends of the earth, we need to be thinking about what opportunity is God calling us to live into as these changes are taking place. Like that first early church, only church they knew was a Jerusalem church, but then when the persecution came, they scattered. But they didn't always talk about good old days in the church in the Jerusalem, but they began to now live out their faith wherever they went in this new place of dislocation. I want to end my message by sharing with you a story of a congregation that faced this dislocation and how they choose to use it as an opportunity to live into God's purpose. So the name of the church is a Christ church, sort of like Christ Community Church, but it's a Christ church, and it's located in a town called Lake Forest in the northern part of the northern suburb of Chicago. It's only about two miles from my divinity school, so I know that church well. The pastor is a classmate of mine from Trinity Days, and I often had chance to preach there, so I know the story of that congregation quite well. Now, some of you may already know this if you're familiar with Chicago land. Lake Forest is a very exclusive, wealthy community. 
In fact, it's one of the wealthiest communities, not only in Chicagoland, but in the state of Illinois, if not the United States. And the church is located there. So for many years, members of the church thought their mission field is Lake Forest. But then this pastor, Mike Woodruff, 10 years ago when he became a senior pastor, he challenged the congregation to think about not just Lake Forest as our mission field, but draw a 10-mile radius around the church. And that 10-mile radius tells us who are the people groups that are in our mission field. Now, as they carefully studied the 10-mile radius, one of the things they observed was this. Last 10 years or so, there has been quite a bit of shift that's happening around Chicago metropolitan area. As many corporate headquarters are moving into the city of Chicago, the Boeing, the McDonald's, Kraft Foods, and so forth, it was drawing many well-trained and educated professionals, particularly young adults, back to the city. And basically, that began to raise the rents and the mortgages of many houses in the Chicago area. And so the poorer families, and often non-white poorer families, were basically getting priced out of Chicago. And now they are relocating themselves to different parts of suburbs, including within that 10-mile radius of this church's mission field. So then church's leadership had to pray about this. If we are serious about looking at this 10-mile radius as our mission, what is God calling us to do? If you go to that church today, they have three services. That church is a beautiful facilities. You will find that their church building is closed. In fact, no one is there to worship in their service today. Because once a year, what they do is this, what they call Serve Your Church Sunday. They have 12 or so projects that they invite their church members to sign up for. And that they will be wearing a same T-shirt and they will be going to these 12 spots, particularly in the under-resourced pockets of communities, to do the work of serving the community. So some teams are painting the public schools, the train stations, and they are beautifying the public parks. Some teams are putting together care packages for families that go hungry. Some teams are visiting nursing homes and are leading worship today for those who cannot physically come to worship services. They think of it as act of worship when they go into the communities within the 10-mile radius and being salt and light today. You know, many in that community would voice, and sometimes community newspapers say this, these poor families that are moving to our north suburb communities, these are creating challenges and problems. Some would even say they're bringing Chicago's urban problem to our backyard. Now, this church could have embraced that interpretation of what's happening, but instead, 
they decided, no, this is now creating a new opportunity for us as a church in Lake Forest to be God's hand and feet, to be salt and light. And what does this mean for our church? So I want to bring a small challenge to you as a members of the Brookside campus of Christ Community Church. I believe it is God's sovereign purpose that God has located this church at this place. We are called to be Christ's witness in our own Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and ends of the earth. What is the Jerusalem of this church? When you draw that 10-mile radius from this church, or it could even be 5-mile radius, who are the people groups? Who are the communities that are living here and that are moving in here? And how might this church be the salt and light in this context? Today's presentation about international students, 1,000 of them in a campus that is only a mile or two away, I'm told. Talk about creative dislocation. Many of these international students come from non-Christian backgrounds. But because of their profound experience of dislocation, they may be open to hear the claims of good news of Jesus Christ. So even that, I don't think, was a coincidence that as I prepared this message, the ministry that was a feature today was International Student Hospitality Ministry. So, brothers and sisters, as this experience of dislocation comes to us individually, to our family, and collectively as a community and society, pray that God would give each of us wisdom and courage to embrace it as an opportunity to grow through creative dislocation rather than having that fear and anxiety and sense of despair consume us. And that's the pathway that we see in the life of Abram. And that is also the pathway that we see in the life of the early church. And that is the pathway, I believe, God is calling us to journey in. Let us pray. Our gracious God in heaven, thank you, O Lord, that you are sovereign and that in your sovereignty you have established this church at this place at this time. Lord, I pray that you would grant your vision, your, your courage, and your power to the leadership and members of this congregation that Brookside would continually bring glory unto you and be an effective light and salt in this community and in this city. And we pray all this in the most precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.